We've been going through a series called Hope in These Last Days. <clears throat> and we're going to continue with a piece today called Shaken or Sealed. Einstein was traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came through, punching cards. Click, 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 click. Getting everybody's tickets. Click, click, click. Got to Albert Einstein and he did one of these. Couldn't find his ticket anywhere. Anybody been there before? And you're patting every pocket that you know and you, you check again and it's coming up short and he just couldn't find it. And the conductor says, don't worry. I know exactly who you are. In fact, how could you not know who Albert Einstein was, right? So don't, know, don't worry, I know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. We're not worried about it, so it's okay. And he kept going, click, 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 click. And the conductor looked back and saw Albert Einstein back in his seat on hands and knees trying to find desperately the ticket in anywhere it could possibly be. And the conductor came back, he said, Albert Einstein, please don't worry about it. I trust you, We're, it'll be okay. And he says, well, I'm, I appreciate that you know who I am, but the problem is I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> Suppose we as a church are on a train. Do we know where we're going? Because where we're going has every, uh, it impacts drastically and affects what we do, doesn't it? If something's going to happen to the train that we're on, we're going to get off, or we're going to walk, or we're going to find some other transportation, or is it in fact going to get to the destination? Sometimes the pilot comes on the airplane. He tells you exactly what he's going to do. He's going to take it up to 50,000, and then I'm going to take a left to Chicago. And, and at the end of it all, you don't really care as long as you end up where it says on the ticket, right? You're not knocking on his cockpit door saying, I'm eating the peanuts now. I'm not eating them all now because that's a big bag. That's what we're doing back here. No, as long as you get there where it says on the ticket. But you know, there's thoughts that circulate around in the Adventist church that the church is not going to get there. It's not going to make it through. It will splinter up. It will have some head-on collision. There will be fallout. There will be a remnant of the remnant that comes forth. And so I want to look at that today. Is that a biblical idea? Does spirit of prophecy in the Bible support this remnant of the remnant? Because there are really two methods that we find in Scripture that God uses to purify His church. And so we're here, uh, we've looked at the coming crisis, we've looked at revival, genuine or counterfeit, now we're at shaken or sealed is our piece today, and then we'll look at a few of these other pieces uh, in the coming weeks. But I want to look at these two methods. We're going to turn to Hebrews in a moment. You can go ahead and turn there. But we see a method over and over in Scripture that God calls out his faithful, his remnant. You might think of Abraham. He was called out from the idolaters of his day as a friend of God. We think of the nation of Israel being called out, if you will, of Egypt. When we get to the New Testament, the word for church is ekklesia. Ek is out. Ecclesia is called, so it's another calling out, if you will, out of Judaism. By the time time continues to go on, though, you still have this influence of pagan practices and Sunday worship and human ordinances and so on. And so you have the reformers, again, another calling out, if you will. And that's where we have Luther and Wycliffe and Huss and Jerome and Calvin. And then God calls out Bible students out of Protestantism during the Advent movement. And that's what we're a part of here. So we see this trend. 
Whenever the corporate body at large drifts away, God calls out, he calls out, he calls out of the body a new faithful group. But we will find in this passage that God has a different means and a different method at end time. Rather than calling out, he does something different. Because if you stop and think about it, if there was a group called out of Adventism and if time would last, they eventually would apostatize and become corrupt. And so he'd have to call out again and call out again. And so at end time, he does something different. And we read about it here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 and 26. It says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him, who spoke on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth? When did God's voice shake the earth? Well, at Sinai, when he gave the Ten Commandment law. So this is talking about the law, when the voice of God shook the earth. And then verse 26, continuing on, but now he has promised saying, yet once more, I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. So at Sinai, God shook the earth when he spoke and wrote the 10 commandments to Israel on tables of stone. It was at that time that worldly Israel was brought to the test of obedience to the law of God. And when Moses came off the mountain, they were dancing around the golden calf. You remember that story? And so it was a test between what God had said and what they did. A test between obedience and disobedience. A test between loyalty and disloyalty. But then in verse 27, it says, Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made. That the things which cannot be shaken do what? Remain. The things that cannot be shaken remain. So what happens to the things that are shaken? They are removed. The reason we are not interested in offshoots is because they do just that. They shoot off rather than remain. And then verse 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So there's loyalty to God, the faithful in Christ, recognizing that God is going to have a corporate people, a church that will not be spit up into independent atoms, but a God that will guide the ark through, that cannot be shaken, but that will remain. Just as the winds blew in the days of Noah and the waves were high, God's hand was upon the ark at that time. Now that didn't mean there wasn't a smell in the ark from time to time, did it? The animals were not housebroken, but God's hand was on the ark and he brought it through. So we have here in volume two of Selected Messages, page 380, the church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. 
It remains. There's the word again. This is Ellen White's comment on this passage we just read. It remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out, the chaff separated from the precious wheat. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless, it must take place. The church may appear as about to fall. Liberal elements may come into the church. We're not ostriches in the sand with our heads in the sand. We recognize this, but it doesn't fall. It remains, it says. And so what is the difference between shaking and sifting? Many of you have been on a Maranatha mission trip before. You've had this experience, right? They've ordered some sand, but the sand that they are able to get is maybe not as good as they are looking for. And so you put several scoops full of the sand into one of these things. It's just simply um, like a a heavy-duty screen, and you shake, and you shake, and you shake, and you shake, and you shake. The whole purpose of the shaking is for the settling to occur within that box there, right? That would be the shaking, the shaking, the shaking, the shaking. Hopefully you came with a big group because it's very tiresome. But you shake, and you shake, and you shake, and you shake. And the sifting would be when that sand finally reaches the bottom and falls out. And what remains is the gravel. Now, I understand the illustration's a little bit backwards. You're looking for the sand in that situation, but you get the idea. There's a shaking, 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 shaking that separates within the church, and eventually the sifting takes place when those that have been separated in heart and mind and soul, they may be here, but they're not really engaged. Their heart is not in it. And then some level comes, some some thing comes that disrupts life as usual, and they're out. It's not worth it. The shaking and the sifting occurs. And this might happen with some crisis that takes place in their own life. Or it may come as a climax of things happening in this earth that ultimately, probably the greatest climax for most, will be the National Sunday Law. And we'll look at that more next week. When people say, you know what, this isn't worth it. I didn't sign up for this. I mean, yes, but all of this, no. And they leave. And it will be easy for them to leave at that point, unfortunately. It's also tempting for some now to say, oh, but I'm a wheat and I want to pull out some of those tares. Brother, you pull out the tares in your own heart. Because some of those people you think are tares may actually be wheat, and some that you think may be wheat may actually be tares. And you may criticize them for what they wear and what they eat, but the criticism in your own heart is the cancer that destroys spirituality in your own life. So the shaking will occur as a separation within, but God will take care of the sifting part. That's not your job. When the crisis comes, it will reveal what is in the heart already. The crisis does not determine what's in the heart. The crisis reveals what's in the heart. Does that make sense? But he is going to get the job done. Here's a verse, Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. He, God, might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, with the washing of water by the word, that he might present to himself a glorious church, 
He is going to get the job done. But don't jump off the train before it reaches final destination. So briefly, I want to look this morning at four classes of individuals who will be shaken out that the Bible or spirit of prophecy refers to as those being shaken out. The first one are the liberals or those that are worldly. And we see there in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, it says, For Demas has forsaken me. Now, Demas worked with Paul. He was involved with Paul, did ministry with Paul, saw God work all kinds of miraculous things through all of that. But in the midst of it all, it says, For Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Where's your heart? What's the most important thing in your thought patterns? What do you love most? What do you think about most? What do you spend your money on most? Do you love the Word of God? Do you love to pray? Does Jesus feel your heart totally? The question is not, is the Christian in the world? The question is, is the world in the Christian? It's okay for the boat to be in the water. You just don't want the water in the boat. Volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 81, says, Those who have step by step. Interesting wording. It's not all at once. It's step by step. I think I could preach a sermon on the patience of the devil because he has a thousand steps and he doesn't care if you leap over a bunch of them. He just wants you to take the next one and the next one and the next one and gradually get closer and closer to what he wants. Those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs will not find it hard matter to yield in the powers that be rather than subject themselves to derision and insult Threat, uh, threatened imprisonment and death. In this time, the gold will be separated from the dross. And where does it take place? In the church. The shaking will come in a time of crisis. I've shared this illustration before. There was a woman that uh, was making a, a, a nice wage, about $30,000, $35,000, but she was offered a really nice job about eighty dollars to $100,000 in stock options and the whole thing. I mean, this was a huge leap for her, but she knew that Sabbath was going to be an issue, and so she asked them about Sabbath, and they said, that's no problem at all. You can have all your Sabbaths off. Except there's about three Sabbaths a year that we're going to need you to go to special conventions and present, but I'm sure it won't be a problem. You can go to your pastor, your priest, and get some permission, and it won't be a problem. And this young lady said, I didn't even have to think about it. I said, well, if... If I'm required to be at those, I will not be able to accept this job offer, this job opportunity. And the man was very perplexed. He couldn't understand. You're making a measly, you know, $30,000. You could be making $100,000 in stock options. Why would you turn that down over just a few days out of the year? And her response was, I don't mean to be arrogant, but for me, it's not two or three Sabbaths a year. For me, it's a matter of conscience. And if I would yield in that point, I know I would yield in other points. That's the step by step, right? And ultimately lose my faith. And no job is worth my faith. And she walked away. And she never had any regrets. You would think that man would want to hire somebody with that much integrity. Step by step. 
The shaking will come. When? In the time of crisis. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, or maybe it's just verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Phillips Modern English translation says this. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. The world presses hard, doesn't it? But let God remold your minds from within. I like that. So the first group that we looked at here, the liberals or the worldly will be shaken out. Secondly, the superficial conservative class. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. In the last days, perilous times will come. And he speaks of all kinds of different groups, but it says at the end, a group having a form of godliness but denying its power. A form of godliness. The superficial conservative class. Again, volume 5 of the Testimonies, 463. At that time, the superficial conservative class, whose influence has steadily retarded the progress of the work, will renounce the faith and take their stand with its avowed enemies, toward whom their sympathies have long been tending. These are the doubters. It can't be done. They don't take a risk for God. They're holding back the work. They're content with being superficial. They're not conservative theologically, but they're just, they're doubters. We've tried that. It doesn't work. Not here. We did evangelism 20 years ago and nobody was baptized. Certainly they wouldn't respond now. Don't ask me to do too much. I'll come to church every Sabbath. No one will challenge me on the Sabbath. I'll study my Sabbath school lesson. I'll pay my tithe. I'm not like those liberal people. But don't bother me on Wednesday night. I just want to come every Sabbath. I just want to sing redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Lift up the trumpet. Jesus is coming again. But I don't have time to give any more than that. But I do have time to watch 12 hours of TV a week. Superficial, conservative class. Thirdly, those that are self-confident. I study my Bible an hour a day. I pray a half hour a day. I participate in every prayer meeting. I watch 3 a.m. I did a Share Him Evangelism series. I've given Daniel and Revelation seminars. I'm going on Maranatha next month. I'm not going anywhere. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he, what? Fall. Volume 6 of the Testimonies. Those who have had great light and precious privileges, but have not improved them. I was baptized. I thought I was done. No, you keep improving those. God keeps stretching us. We never get to a point where we say we're done, right? So there's a group that's had special light and precious privileges, but they haven't improved them. They haven't built upon them. They've just settled in and become self-sufficient and self-confident. And under one pretext or another will go out from us, she says. They're like Peter saying, Lord, though all may forsake you. What? I never will. 
and he pulls out the sword and he's ready to fight. Friends, if your study is making yourself righteous and arrogant so that you're ready to fight and win any argument, you're missing the point. Lastly, the fourth group, they're self-centered. Second Timothy in his list again, in these last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves. Their lives revolve around self. They're not willing to make sacrifices for God or his work. I can't give to Maranatha. I'm saving for a bigger house. We need a new car. We need a bigger TV. Is it wrong to put money away each month for missions? Am I missing something? Is that somehow a bad investment? Early writings, page 50, she says, the mighty shaking, shaking has commenced and will go on, and I believe it will crescendo, and all will be shaken out who are not willing to take a bold and unyielding stand for the truth to sacrifice for God and his cause. Are you willing to take a bold and unyielding stand? Are you willing to sacrifice for God? And how much of God's church will these four classes represent? Soon God's people will be tested by fiery trials and the great proportion of those who now appear to be genuine and true will prove to be base metal. Is that sobering? To stand in defense of truth and righteousness when the majority forsake us. To fight the battles of the Lord when champions are few. This will be our test. I've shared this illustration before. If you go to Florida, there's all these oranges, and the oranges are then sorted. You have A oranges, B oranges, C oranges, and they're all based on what? Size. Friends, I hate to say it, but for the sake of time, I'll just be brief. There's a hole big enough for every orange. There's a hole big enough for you. There's a hole big enough for me. The only way we can be safe and not be sifted out is to be safely and securely in the hand of the orange grove owner. Are you with me? If we're not in the hand of Christ, you know, we can be bouncing along. If oranges could talk, this isn't biblical, but they're bouncing along on the conveyor belt and they're in air conditioning now. Oh, this is wonderful. It's supposed to be Disneyland for the oranges. And they're bouncing along and all of a sudden they turn a corner and they find themselves going in one of these machines and all of the little sea oranges, the small ones, they're all gone. Oh, did you see those sea oranges? Yes, they were the liberal ones. They were always worldly. Well, they're gone now. And they turn the corner and there's another section. And they all go the bee oranges. And the A say, oh, did you see those poor bees? Those were the superficial conservative class. I knew all along that they weren't genuine. And then they turn another corner. Folks, there's a hole for all of us. Don't get uppity and self-confident. Only in the hands of Christ are we secure. There are many today who are not in the worldly class, not in the superficial class. They spend great amounts of time with God and Bible study and prayer but the basis of their religious experiences themselves. Their confidence for end times is in their own ability rather than in Jesus' ability. And when the crisis comes, their self-centered experience will collapse. 
Jesus wants to be, lead me to be less confident in what I can do and what we can do and more confident in what he can do, what he alone can do. And we have to learn daily dependence on Jesus Christ. It's in great controversy. I think it was Martin Luther who said it. When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. Isn't that beautiful? That's the essence of what we're talking about. So one more quick list. What causes the shaking? Number one, false doctrine. Ephesians 4, 14. We should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried with every wind of doctrine. And I want you to look up 2 Timothy we have this one and one other verse I want you to actually turn to and read in your own Bibles. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 and 18. We'll spend the most time on this cause right here. But some of the church are doubting the heavenly sanctuary. Some are doubting there's a 24-hour consecutive seven-day creation. People are interpreting Scripture differently, emotionally driven experience with God, and so on and so forth. And so we read here in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. And what is this message? Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth. And how have they strayed? Saying that the resurrection is already past. And they overthrow the faith of some. Is there a resurrection? Yes. So they were right about the event. But what were they wrong about? The timing. Now don't miss this. So Hymenaeus and Philetus has to do, their error has to do with timing. Let me suggest there are three areas that the devil can use this deception of Hymenaeus and Philetus in the church today, and the issue is not over the event, but over timing. The creation, cross, and the coming of Christ. You can call them the three C's if you want to. You knock out those three over the issue of timing, and we have serious trouble. Let's look at them. Creation. The heresy goes something like this. This is the heresy. Yes, God created the world, but a seven-day creation? They're not literal days. God was the first cause, yes, but this world's got to be millions and millions of years old, and the creation week was not seven literal days. The event is right, but the timing is off. How can you have a memorial of creation when there is no literal seven-day week? It doesn't work. And when one begins to undermine the Sabbath, you bring the entire Ten Commandment law into question, don't you? You take out one, what's the use of the others? How about the cross? The heresy says, it's all finished at the cross. Nothing more after that. At the cross, the complete plan of salvation was finished and done. Now, it's true that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was complete. And it's true that you can add nothing to the grace of Christ that was given at the cross. But it's also true 
that in the sanctuary of the Old Testament, you needed a dying lamb and a living priest. It is also true that unless you have Christ as our high priest, applying his sacrificial blood for the salvation of all mankind, then the cross has little of any effect. It must be applied to those who accept it. I could go out in my yard, I could get bit by a rattlesnake, and somebody could give me some antivenom, and I could say, thank you so much for that antivenom. It's incredible, it's amazing, I can't add anything to it. This is just what I need. And I could put it in my pocket and continue walking down the trail. And it will do me no good unless it is applied in my behalf. Are you with me? Jesus is just as much the priest as he is the dying lamb. The event is right, but they throw it off with timing. And lastly, the coming of Christ. Sure, Jesus is going to come, but it won't be any time soon, you understand. It's going to be hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years before Jesus comes back. So you take away the urgency, no sense of urgency, of the coming of Christ. And what do you do to the Advent movement? So you undermine the Sabbath on the issue of timing. You undermine the high priestly ministry of Jesus in heaven on the issue of timing. You undermine the whole concept of preparing people for the coming of Jesus. And it's all based on time. The error, the heresy of Hymenaeus and Philetus. So what's going to cause the shaking? That was just one example of false doctrine. Number two, miracles. We touched on this briefly last time. Revelation 13, 13. He, Satan, performs great signs or miracles so that even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. We read also in volume two, selected messages 53, he, Satan, will make people sick and then will suddenly remove from them his satanic power. They will be regarded as healed. These works of apparent healing will bring Seventh-day Adventists to the test. So the devil works to make our churches cold and lifeless and void of God's power. He works to make them no longer anchored in God's word. So then he can introduce the counterfeit that is filled with false miracles and all kinds of sensational things that people say we are now being poured out and filled with the Holy Spirit. Works both sides against the middle. Friends, if you want to see miracles, get involved in soul winning. If you want to see miracles, get involved in Bible study. Take a risk for Christ. Go on a Maranatha mission trip. He will pour out his gifts, not to edify ourselves or exalt ourselves, but to bring honor and glory to him. If we're seeking after the gifts to edify ourselves, this is what we were talking about last week. What sense does that make? It's not about building us up us. It's about building up him. Bringing honor and glory to him. So I have a thinker question. If you go to a service that consists of 43 minutes of music that's heightening and building and building and building, and then you have a seven-minute sermon where five of which is an illustration with the Bible text tagged on at the end, is that service preparing people for the true or the false revival? Bears some thinking, doesn't it? Because everything is being invested in my emotions. Making people feel good. 
Is that the purpose of our worship service? Or is it to develop holiness in the hearts and minds of God's people? To prepare them for the coming of the Lord. So what's going to cause the shaking? We have false doctrine, we have miracles, and we have persecution. Revelation 13, 15. He, the devil, was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be... Oh, we should have left that out. I don't like that word. I didn't sign up for this. It says in Great Controversy 608, as the storm approaches... A large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth, abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. When persecution really breaks, those superficial Adventists who desire praise and flattery and popularity will leave. It's hard to think about. Early writings, 270. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by counsel, the true witness to the Laodiceans. Who's the true witness? None other than Jesus, the true witness. And who is this straight testimony to affect? Oh, I can't wait to tell the people in my church. I'm going to really give it to them. Somebody needs to tell them, and I think it's me. Is that what it's talking about? No, the straight testimony is God putting his arm around me and saying, David, you have a little pride in your heart. I love you so much, I want to tell you about it. It's Jesus' arms around me saying, you know, you were a little too critical of that other brother. That's what the straight testimony is all about. And notice where the straight testimony has its effect as we continue reading. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and will lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. You won't be able to help but spread it. So first there's a message that affects our hearts. Then that leads me to exalt and uphold his standard in my life. Then I share God's truth, his love, his grace, his forgiveness, his life-changing power. But that's not what everyone's going to do. Some will not bear this straight testimony. They will rise up against it. And this is what will cause a shaking among God's people. So how are we to stand? How are we to live through the shaking time and remain? How can you and I not be sifted out? Well, we listen to the true and faithful witness, Jesus Christ, and his words to Laodicea. Last verse, we're going to look up Revelation chapter 3. The words of the faithful and true witness to the Laodicean church. Revelation chapter 3. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the Amen, the so be it, the faithful and true witness. Now Laodicea is in Turkey. It's across from Hierapolis where the great mineral springs come out 
and they come out very hot. And they're carried by aqueducts across the valley to Laodicea, and they become lukewarm in the process. Laodicea had a population of about 150,000 people. They had a university of Puma Kala. has been excavated, and it's amazing, I'm told. It was renowned for its medical university. They specialized in ISAF. They produced a little powder, and people would come all over to have their vision cured at Laodicea at this medical university. Laodicea was a fashion center, producing beautiful garments. It was the Paris, the London of its day. Garments dyed in purple. Any lady big in fashion would get her garments from Laodicea. It was a banking center. They minted coins there. And in fact, Laodicea was incredibly wealthy, so much so that when the city was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 and 61 AD, one of, as one of Rome's outposts, Rome offered to help them rebuild. But you know what Laodicea said? He said, forget it. We have enough money of our own. We don't want your money, and we're not taking it. We're rebuilding on our own. Thank you very much. So they were proud. They were wealthy. They were affluent. And there was a great sports center, the Hippodrome, would seat 25 to 30,000 people where they'd have chariot races. They had a playhouse and a theater that would seat 8 to 10,000, musical scores, plays, and great actors. You get the idea. So when you're thinking about Laodicea, you're thinking about fashion, about a medical university, about sophistication, about intelligence and money and sports, sex-centered, thrill-jaded, morally twisted, spiritually dwarfed society. That's what you're thinking about. You're thinking about complacency. Life is wonderful. Life is great. Life is grand. You're thinking about American culture. You're thinking about suburban American Adventists. You're thinking about sleepiness. We have it all. We have the Word of God. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We have the three angels' messages. You're thinking about smug complacency that settles over me and it settles over you. When we think of Laodicea, we're not thinking of them. We're thinking of us. Not those people over there, but us sitting here. Our smugness, our lack of fervor, our lack of compassion. And so we continue reading verse 15 of Revelation chapter 3. It says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him 
and he with me. Friends, it's a message of hope. Just as he spoke at creation, he says, I will speak the word, and through my living word, your heart is going to be changed. Folks, we need revival. We need a living faith with men and women obtaining the victory as people's minds and hearts are opened up by the Holy Spirit, that they may sense the nearness of Jesus soon return. Do you believe it? We must be settled in the truth. And when the majority walk away as the shaking climaxes, as the worldly, the superficial, the self-confident, the lovers of self leave us, it will only be as we stand on the solid foundation, the solid rock of Jesus Christ, that we will remain. Satan will introduce doctrinal heresies into the church. He'll work false miracles. He'll provide what seems to be security for those who follow him and receive his mark. But nevertheless, God will have a group of people who know what it means to daily walk with Jesus, settled in the truth, and they'll be sealed. I want to be part of that group, don't you? Only by the grace of Jesus and constant dependence on him and no one else. Oh God, we don't want to play church. We don't want to play Christian to have the appearance of godliness. Lord, we want to be grounded in your word, in truth, and fully and completely dependent on you. Lord, by your grace, we long to remain in you, in this church, that we may be the apple of your eye, the bride of Christ. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.